0: If you would like, turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 17, which is uh, a part of verses 12 through 14. So there's a continuity between last week and this week. So if I could just uh, restate a question that I asked last week and then pray and then look at these verses with you. I asked the question, we embrace the cross, that is the cross of Jesus. We embrace the cross as a source of life but do we as believers also embrace the cross as a way of life? A source of life, way of life. That is we enjoy the benefits of the cross, but do we practice the pattern of the cross was the question. Um, where Jesus of course teaches us that part of discipleship is to um, take up a cross and and follow him. So that's rich in this book and in these verses that we're about to look at. So. With that said, let's pause and pray. Father, we pray with the psalmist that you would be gracious to us, that you would bless us, and that you would make your gracious, favorable face to shine upon us. But not just for us, we pray that so that your ways may be known on earth and through us your saving power among all nations father we want to see our place living right here in this time for as many years as you give us in light of the whole in light of the big picture in light of eternity knowing that we're on this magnificent adventure that began eons of time ago that will end in a new creation and each and every one here plays a significant and vital part of that unfolding journey and adventure. And while we look forward, Lord, to um, reaching the shores of a new creation, we know that we have work to do and we have a responsibility to bear as as followers of Jesus, which makes a very real impact um, on eternity. So we pray for that this morning for perspective and we pray for grace and strength to be who we really are as believers. Help me to teach in a way that's accurate and true to the text. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's start off by talking about, um, just for a second, our five senses, you know, by which we experience the world. I think all of us would be agreed that they are tremendous gifts of the Lord, and if we didn't have this ability to see and hear and taste and touch and smell, that we wouldn't learn anything. Um, that through these things we experience both beauty and pleasure, as well as pain and danger. That through these senses we can be warned, as well as experience like wonder. Right? That's the senses that God Himself has given to us. Now, in my opinion, the one that gets the short end of the stick, or the shortest end of the stick, of all five senses is our sense of smell. It's just just my opinion. We rely heavily upon sight, um, our hearing. Touch, how, how would we feel if we couldn't like embrace uh, the loved one's hug? It'd be hard for us, or, or, um, or hearing or tasting. But smelling, I kind of think it's kind of the caboose, if you will. <laughs> but when you stop to think about it, you realize, man, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of beauty and wonder in this gift of smell that we have. Right, I mean, on, on the one hand, it can warn you of danger. You smell smoke, and you know maybe there's fire, or it can tell you something is dead in your office. <laughs> I, uh, this is this is the truth. Um, a few months ago, I, I smelled something in my office. It was my, my my office smelled off. Right, off just means it doesn't quite smell right, and it wasn't me. Okay, <laughs> uh, and I just didn't really pay that much attention. I just thought maybe it smells bad outside. Sometimes it smells bad in Fairfield, and maybe it just happened to get. You know, condensed into my office. Well, days went on, and it got worse and worse, and I actually suspected that someone was playing a prank on me at one point. There's a, a devious um, director of our tutoring center who likes to play practical jokes, so I thought, maybe, but finally it got so bad. And let's just be honest, it's really hard to like study the Bible and smell, it, it kind of smelled like rotting flesh. Now, someone in the first service says, well, you've smelled rotting flesh before? I'm like, I grew up in the country, man. There were dead skunks and dead squirrels, and there were even dead deer sometimes laying out in the hot summer, Northern California sky, and it stinks. So it started to smell just like that. Not quite as bad as a rotting deer, but it was, it was bad. And so I decided, hey, I've had enough of this. And so I scoured my office, and sure enough, there was a dead mouse in the corner, I never knew that a little tiny mouse could smell that bad. I don't know how long it had been there, but it was bad. It was rank. I got rid of the mouse, and the smell went away. Now, I didn't like what I smelled, but I'm glad I was able to smell, if it makes a difference. It's functional. It's kind of important. Now, on the flip side, one of the things that brings me great pleasure is when I come home, especially during the winter season when it's cold out, and to open the door, front door, to my house, and be greeted by a waft of beef stew. That's been you know, cooking in the crock pot for six hours and the whole house smells like beef stew. I just wanna to go to heaven at that moment, right? <laughs> beef stew with onions and carrots, and all just so wonderful, right? There's so many things that we, we smell that we, we love. Of course, we know we can't taste if we can't smell, so with smell we also get taste thrown in there. We like the, the smell of, of fresh babies. At least I do. A lot of people do. Unless it's a dirty diaper, that's a different story. But fresh smell of babies or maybe your favorite person's cologne or perfume. You're like, oh, they're here. Or the smell of the ground after a first rain. I love that smell. Or fresh cut grass. I actually like the smell of fresh cut grass. I think a lot of people do. But one of my favorites is, you know, there's this smell that comes into my truck windows. When we make ourselves... When, when we travel above the, like the oak line into the pine tree line up in the, uh, the the Sierra Nevadas, and it's this mixture of pine tree and sage. And because I've camped my whole life up there, it's like going home. I just like, feels like home. Here's the, the, you can smell bad things or wonderful things that bring you pleasure. Now, you're thinking, what in the world does this have to do with the Bible, Dan? Well, first of all, it has to do with the passage we're gonna look at this morning but even before our passage it has to do with a theme in the old testament that i think if we don't take into consideration you'll lose the sense of it that god actually describes himself as a god who smells things now he's not being literal he's speaking in human language so we can understand but but he smells things and he takes pleasure in what he smells so after the flood waters recede during the time of noah Noah built an altar, and on that altar, he uh, offered a sacrifice, a burnt sacrifice. And this is what it says. Then Noah built an altar to Yahweh, the Lord, and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now, that's a lot of animals and a lot of birds. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. The flood was about God being mad and angry, and he had a right to be. There was violence that filled the earth. But after the flood, Noah offers a sacrifice, and the idea is the smoke from that sacrifice went up, and God was pleased. And then he makes a decision. Actually, he enacts a covenant that he would never destroy the earth by flood again. That is, Curse turned to blessing, judgment turned to covenant promise. So you have this idea of a sacrifice that is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, as you move into the other books of the Old Testament, Exodus and Leviticus, this is repeated over and over and over again that you're supposed to offer up these sacrifices, animal sacrifices, and they are a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Like he's just like, yes why would God take pleasure in um, the smoke of a sacrificed animal? Well, as I said, it's, it's, it's not because um, God has a physical nose. It's not because he likes the smell of barbecue, as good as that is. Nor is it because it makes him hungry. So why is it? Why is it God takes pleasure in the smoke of a sacrifice, in a sacrifice? And I think it comes down to this that between a holy God and a sinful people, God takes pleasure in the fact that these sacrifices symbolically offer a way of acceptance and redemption and forgiveness of atonement, that is, that covers over sin so that we can be restored and reconciled and therefore live in relationship to God. Or looked at differently, it sustains God's holy character at the same time shows his mercy. So when an animal is sacrificed, God is reminded through that sacrifice of redemption. That is, through the death of an animal, people live. Death, life. Of course, we know as you move into the New Testament that those sacrifices that were made were just trailers, as in a movie trailer. Just a preview, just, just a, an anticipation of the one true, once-for-all sacrifice that Jesus himself made on the cross where he willingly, of his own accord, out of love and out of trust and obedience to his Father, fully and completely laid out his life, suffered, and died as the sacrifice to pay for our sin so that we could be forgiven and have life. And we'll, of course, throw the resurrection in there, not throw it in there. It's actually part of the whole Um, death and life. And I believe, based upon these Old Testament texts, that a moment of pure pleasure on the father's part was when his son gave his life for sinful people. And God was like, yes, he's pleased at the willing sacrifice of his own son for the sake of bringing sinners home. So you have this idea of a pleasing aroma of sacrifice, of atonement redemption, of God bringing life out of death. Now that is the sacrifice, that is the cross, and we receive many benefits from that cross. I mean, actually, all of our benefits, eternal benefits come through the cross. But in response now to this huge sacrifice that's been made for us, we are called to live the same pattern. The same pattern. We saw part of that last week. Paul, in the scripture we just read, or Doug just read, tells the believers of Rome, the Roman church, he says, in light of the gospel of what Jesus has done on your behalf, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That is, there is supposed to be an aroma that rises from our life. A life lived in sacrificial devotion to Jesus, His message, and His mission. Jesus, His message, and His mission. We are to see our lives, if you will, as sacrifices that offer up an aroma to the Lord. And that's what's in view when we read these verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, but I'm going to back up to 14 because it's all part of the whole. He says, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Pause there. Um, Last week, I taught that Paul sees himself being led by God who's in the front in his, if you will, chariot, and he's part of the death squad, part of the conquered peoples. He sees himself on a death march, that is as a sacrifice. That's how that interpretation plays out. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now here's our verses. For we are the aroma, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and amongst those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life, who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Let me break that in half. Actually, it's, it's in half, but just the first part of verse 15, this aroma. The first part of it is he sees himself as, and through him, us, as the aroma of Christ to God. That is sacrificial terminology right from the Old Testament. Um, It's worship terminology because when they came and made their sacrifices, that was worship to the Lord to say, you're number one in our lives. We trust you with our future for we are the aroma of Christ to God. Paul's highest and the Christian's highest allegiance and loyalty, service is to God in worship. That's, that, that's the great end for which we were created to worship God with our lives. He reiterates it again in the end here when he talks about God as the fundamental motivation for everything in life. He says, verse 17, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, that is people who are using God's word to, for some other end, whether it's to make money or whether it's to get praise or whatever. He's like, we're not like that. Our motive is that we're sent by God And we do this in the sight of God. And he does so as the aroma of Christ. The aroma of Christ to bring pleasure to God. What is that? It's not just an aroma, it's the aroma of Christ. That is when God looks down as we're living sacrificially in devotion to to, to Jesus, his message and his mission, God smells, and he's like, yes. What I smell on my people is Jesus. That's what I smell. Let me say that again. The sacrificial devotion to Jesus, his message, and his mission, and we're willing to sacrifice ourselves for that end, then God is like, yes, they smell like my son. And that brings pleasure to him. And we should want to bring pleasure to God. Now, someone would respond to that maybe, and maybe not, but I figured I'd throw this in anyway, just in case there's somebody who would respond this way. Someone might respond, wait a second, so I can bring more or less pleasure to God, but aren't I completely forgiven, right? The cross has completely forgiven me as a believer for every past, present, and future sin? Yes. And don't I have the fullness of Christ's righteousness given to me? That is, I'm still a sinner, but I get credited to me all of the righteous deeds of Jesus, so God sees me as perfectly righteous, Yes, on both counts. All your sin is gone, and you have the full righteousness of Jesus. So the question someone might ask is, well, then, how could I be any more or less pleasurable to God? It's a good question, don't you think? And one that doesn't fully understand the dynamic relationship of a covenant relationship. It's dynamic. It's not static. Even in the covenant of marriage, for example, two people say, I do, and I do, and now they're covenanted together together which is modeled upon God's covenant with his people. That doesn't mean that the young couple understand what, how to love each other. Now they go on in that covenant community or that covenant relationship, and they, they begin to learn what it means to love each other in ways that they can fully understand and embrace. That's, that's the way it works. The same thing with the Lord is that we can please the Lord. I mean, and Paul says it explicitly in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 10. He says, try to discern how to please the Lord. What pleases him? Well, a life that's lived like Christ and his cross. Not just as a source of life, but as a way of life. And isn't that part of what it means to love anyway? Like when you truly love somebody, then you're eager to find out what makes them happy. And I think you're a fool as a husband if you don't figure that out. If you find out that your wife likes Italian food more than any other kind of food, more than Thai food, Indian food, Ethiopian food, or American burgers, then where do you take her for her birthday? Italian food, because you've learned what makes her happy. You seek the pleasure of the one you love. If on Valentine's Day it's chocolate, then let it be chocolate. If it's roses, let it be roses. That is, there's a desire of the person who loves someone else to actually seek the happiness and pleasure of the one. That is, learning what it means to please. Our lives, if they are patterned upon Jesus, rooted in grace, should have this aroma of life and the way we live that makes God take pleasure in us. Like, yes. Or let me come at it from a completely different angle. Have you ever noticed that if you get really close, in close, close proximity to something that's potent in terms of smell, what happens? You start to smell like it. It's like you get close to the bonfire and you're cooking marshmallows with your kids and s'mores and you walk away from the fire, guess what you smell like? Beef jerky, that's what you smell like. Smoked brisket, whatever your meat is, Adam would tell you a whole bunch of you know, it's just a, you know if you, you you get my my aunt used to smoke like a chimney inside the house. We actually, after she passed, lived in her house and took down the pictures and there were uh picture frame outlines that's how much she smoked and we'd go to her house at Christmas and we walk away, and all of us smoke like smoked a pack of cigarettes. we were close. Proximity to my to my aunt. If you, if you get really you know close to your wife and she's wearing a Chanel number five, guess what you're going to smell like you're going to smell like Chanel number five. It's just that's how it works. Well, when you get really close to Jesus, I'm not talking in word only, but like he is the passion of your heart, and you do your best to allow his word to indwell you, and you commune with him. You rely upon him, and you, he, he's, he, he's, he's your main purpose for life. Well, you know what happens when you get close to Jesus? You do end up organically smelling like him and bringing pleasure to your father. That's what happens. Pleasure to God as we live a life that is sacrificially devoted to Jesus, his message, and his mission. And it should. I mean, you look back to when you were a kid. If you had a good dad... Or mom, I suppose. It's just one of those things where when you, when you did something that you weren't asked to do as a chore and you did it and you saw your dad smile, you're just like, yeah, that, that's awesome, you know? He comes out and says, hey, Danny, thanks for mowing the lawn. Even though you chopped off most of the sprinkler heads, you did great, you know? Just that, that, that's money in the bank. Every boy wants to see the pleasure of his father. What Christian wouldn't want to see God smile? Like, yes. As Paul says, man, life lived in worship. Like, I, we are to be the aroma of Jesus. We smell like him to the Father, and as we do, he's like, yes. That's a motivation right there to, to live a life like Christ is the pleasure of God. You, you, someone might say, though, okay, so if I take that to the logical conclusion, Dan, then what that means is I should live a life of giving everything away. I shouldn't own anything, I shouldn't take pleasure in anything, because i got to sacrifice it all. Well, in one sense, yes. And that is that when you become a Christian, and even if you don't become a Christian, this is still true, but we willingly do it as a Christian, it's like, everything you are, everything you own, everything you have done, are doing, or will do, everything is, in some sense, owned by God. All of your wealth, all of your time, all of your energy, all of your thoughts all of your breath, it's all his anyway. So yes, in one sense, it's like it's all his, and you recognize it's all his. But does that mean that you have to give it all away? Is this, like, a become an aesthetic, like a monk and renounce material ownership? And the answer, of course, is no. We're told in, by Paul himself, it's like, let the rich among you enjoy and give thanks for what they have. That gives glory to God, too. And share it with other people. That's part of why God gives it, is to share it. So, I think the Lord would have you enjoy a car or a hobby or beef stew that's been sitting in a crock pot for six months. No, six hours. Right? But, yeah, that would be pretty nasty. Then it'd smell it go the other way. But here's the thing we have to be driven by a deeper motive than God's gifts. It's really easy to love the gifts as the main reason for life and the giver as the second of life. There has to be a deeper motivation for the Christian that is not set on material or materials or gifts, whatever. They're all temporary. And at the end of the day, I think that deep motivation has to be that my deepest pleasure is in bringing pleasure to God. My deepest pleasure is to see my dad smile at me. So there you have this vertical part of what it means to be in aroma, Roma, to live a life patterned upon. And I realize that we grow in this. Like we, we probably when you start off the Christian life, your aroma is good but a little funky. But as you grow in Christ, there should be a more and more understanding as you're formed and conformed to the image of Jesus, the aroma should get more and more beautiful, right? So there's a process in this. But this is first and foremost an act of worship, Paul. We are the aroma of Christ to God. But then there is this horizontal dimension of this with people and its effect upon people. He continues on after he says, to God, he says, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to the one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. You have two impacts. That is, wherever he goes, Paul realizes that he gives off an odor, like, and, and, and for him, it's, it's about Jesus. Jesus. And people are going to respond in one or two two, two ways. They are going to consider the, the smell of who Jesus is, this Christianity, this cross and resurrection thing, as either foul, I don't like it, and reject it, in which case they're perishing. And others will smell the aroma of Jesus and hear the message of cross and resurrection and go, Yes! That's life! To the one, the message of death will sound like death, and they will stay dead. For all eternity is the sense. And for others, they will hear a message of the cross and resurrection as a message of life, and they will live. That's exactly what he means by a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. And notice there's only two categories here. A reality throughout the entire Bible there's no middle category. You're either in the perishing category or in the saving category. You're either in the death category or you're in the life category. There's no, like, neutral zone where you can get out of both one, either, either choice. This is where it is. These two categories of people are eternal. That's the sense. There is eternal death for those who reject Christ, and there is eternal life. There is eternal judgment, and there is eternal joy. And those are the only two options in the Bible, period, depending on how one responds to the aroma of Jesus that is communicated by who? By you, by me. That is a tremendous responsibility to recognize that the people you come in contact with are going to smell something on you, that aroma. And that aroma is going to have an internal impact. It doesn't do anything for you, does it? If you let that really settle in like eternity as in eons and eons of time of life or death, salvation or judgment, and you play a part in that, that's heavy. there's no way around it it's it's heavy, and I think we should feel the weight of that or if I may connect to something Veronica said in the in 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 her welcome regarding the coronavirus, right it's like I don't know that I've ever felt something so intense in terms of, uh, of a virus or some kind of a disease, you know, the swine flu and the bird flu and the West Nile virus, it didn't seem as intense as this, just the news and all of that stuff, I was actually really wondering how many people had come to church today, <laughs> first service is full and this, you, guys are, you guys are awesome, you know what that means, you guys are, you guys are fearless. You're the elect, you're the chosen ones of God. You decided, you know what, my number my days are numbered. <laughs> if coronavirus takes it, well that's what God willed. And if it's cancer, it's cancer. You know? It's just like, wow, you're you're awesome for being here. <laughs> you're gonna walk in faith, not fear, right? But there's there's a weight to it, isn't there? People are worried. It's affected hospitals, law enforcement. People have been quarantined. Others are shopping like we're on the edge of the apocalypse. <laughs> right? And it's a, what do they say? Last time I read, it's a 2.3 mortality rate, which is great if you're the 98.7, or is that 97 point? Yeah, 7. But if you're the 2.3, well, that's bad. There's a weight to it everybody feels it, whether you agree with what's going on in the media or not. But here's something. From what I know from the Bible and also just common human experience, is the mortality rate in this fallen world is 100%. The mortality rate of living in this fallen world is 100%. Everybody's going to die in this room. Unless Jesus comes back, and I hope he comes back quick, you're going to die of coronavirus or die of cancer or die of a aneurysm or a heart attack or old age bottom line is the mortality rate of humanity is 100% and it's what happens after that when we move into eternal categories that really matters and to recognize Christian I'm talking to you, I'm talking to me living in my neighborhood and the people that I know God is going to have an eternal impact moving in one of two directions, and there's only two, by the aroma of your life. We should feel that weight. It's about something far bigger than just diseases. It's about sin. It's about eternal joy and eternal judgment. And God uses, he has ordained your life to play an eternal part of our future that's heavy. At the same time, Paul felt the heaviness too, you know, which is why he said, who's sufficient for these things? Are you kidding? God's using me to impact eternal pe- people in eternity? Are you kidding me? Who's sufficient for these things? And the implied answer is no one's sufficient for this, except God himself, which Paul acknowledges the next chapter. He says, "Not that we are sufficient for uh, to, in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but but our sufficiency is from God. He supplies. This is His sovereign work through our lives. He is the one that's leading this triumphant procession. So we got to trust Him to do His work. So while there is a heaviness to it, at the end of the day, He's the one who bears the burden. And if it weren't for that." man, I I don't know that we could sustain the weight if we truly understood what's at stake. So our trust has to be in a sovereign God working graciously through our lives, as imperfect as our aromas might be sometime, to move people into one of two places. But it does kind of, I don't know, it's an appropriate, appropriate fitting place to ask the question, who do I smell like? Like when people get in really close, and again, I'm not speaking literal, when people get close to you, what is the taste they get? What is the smell they get? If they were to be really honest with you, would they say, you know, what I smell is a lot of selfish ambition, like watching you climb the ladder and it seems like you don't care who you have to crush to get there? Or lacking integrity with your clients, like you're willing to step on them in order to get ahead financially, it smells to me like fine, like selfish ambition. Or if they got up really close to you, or they say, you know what, what I, the scent you give off is vanity. Vanity about physical beauty or strength. That's what so it seems to be about. Or someone gets up close to you, and do you leave the scent of, of I like my things. I like wealth and I like the freedom that it gives me and I like to talk about it. What kind of a scent are you giving off? Or are you giving off a, a scent that Jesus really is like in the pores of your like like life like garlic, right? You eat garlic and you smell like garlic, it's like I I live and eat God's word and, and, and Jesus like bleeds out of my pores. That's is that how it is? So that someone could say, you know, I, there's something different about him at work. I don't know exactly what it is, but he's the guy who typically shows up when somebody's hurt. Or he's the, she's, the, she's, the, she's the lady who takes one for the team in our workplace over and over again, just always there, willing to take the lower spots, to help out. Or willing to just have God in normal conversation because it's part of the fabric of who you are. Would people, if they knew you, would they say he or she smells like Jesus? That's that's a good question, I think, to ask. Good question to ask. And it's worth living a life of sacrificial devotion to Jesus, above all else, his message and his mission. Why? Motivation, first and foremost, has worship to God, but if I may end with one final one. We're going to get to it in chapter 4, and it's, it's part of the it's, the, it's the title of the series. Paul says, I consider the light and momentary affliction. Like, all he went through, he considered it light, as opposed to weighty, and temporary, as opposed to permanent. I consider the light and momentary afflictions of this life to be preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Whatever level of sacrifice goes on in your life, for Christ's sake, as an aroma, will not even be worthy of comparison for what's to come. And we live, church, in that hope. So the simple truth condense down, let your life smell like Christ in the way you live, your choices, your decisions, the way you speak. Let your life smell like Christ. Amen. God, for the name of Christ, for his glory, for the sake of the kingdom for the sake of your eternal people that you have been forming since the very beginning, we pray for renewal. We pray for refinement of our hearts. We pray for repentance if necessary, if the wrong kind of smoke is rising from our life. We pray for a, a reawakening. We pray for a reawakening of passion for Him and a willingness to bring you pleasure, which should be our greatest pleasure, the pleasure of God. In Christ's name I pray.